Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour. We go underground and uh, off the radar as we go Ghost Protocol with Mission Impossible 4. I'm joined by uh, those whose presence we'll deny and all the rest of the puns. Uh, Matt Leonard, how are you, sir? Very well, thank you. Very well. Had a great day and looking forward to the show. From the UK and from uh, the East Coast of America, Mr. Jason Diamond. How are you, sir? How are you doing? New York City. Yep. Yep. New York, <laughs> New York. Can you tell me, is it New York, New York because it's New York City in New York State? That's right, right? New York, yes. New York? Yes. So good yes. they named it twice. Okay, yeah. Exactly. All righty. So, look, um, we're going to start with uh, MI4. We're going to discuss the, uh, the film, of course, and the visual effects of it. I've been looking forward to this one a lot. This is uh, kicking off the new year. We have a lot of really good shows coming up this year and a lot of really cool things that will be happening uh, with the show. But I have to say we had a great response over the last 12 months and uh, the numbers on this show are doing unbelievably high. So we want to thank you guys, listeners, for being with us. And hopefully you'll uh, stay with us this year as we uh, move further into our analysis of the visual effects. But as we always do, we want to start with what you guys thought of the film. And uh, I loved it. I've said that on Twitter. So let's start with you, Mr. Diamond. What did you think? Uh, I loved it too, cause, especially because I hated one and two, and uh, I thought three was was really good. And J.J. Abrams really got to the meat of the story, but I think this is better than that one. Uh, yeah, it was interesting because three didn't do as well, um, and many people put that down to Tom jumping the sofa. But uh, I think we're all well. I'm certainly back on Team Tom. What about you, Matt? Are you Team Tom? Yeah, definitely. I've been looking forward to this movie for quite a long time. I, again, really liked uh, 3. I liked 1 as well. Uh, But this one, I think, for me, is probably the best one um, out of all four of them. So I absolutely loved it. Got to see it twice and uh, would happily uh, go and watch it again if I could. Right. The only one I actually had anything to do with was 2, when I was helping with some of the previous because it was in Australia. So thanks for that. But no, that's fine. That's fine. I understand. Um, <laughs> well, so, they messed up your... It was really bad. Well, because he was married to Nicole, and so they decided yeah. to do it in Sydney. There was actually some funny scenes in 2, like they were sort of in Sydney and they suddenly go to a sheep station. Like, it's really close to get to a sheep station from Sydney when Sydney is a vast yeah. city, one of the big cities of the world. And literally, it's like saying... I'm in London and I'm just going to jump in a helicopter and go over to Germany Um, because it's (laughs) a a very, very far distance. But anyway, um, leaving aside Australian geographical problems with two, um, it was a pretty slick film and some people didn't like that. This one um, had humour and obviously one of the big factors on this film was the director, Brad Bird. Uh, Many of us loved his stuff from uh, Pixar. Um, Mr. Dime, what do you think of his translation into live action? Successful? Absolutely. Uh, and the, the anamorphic, or mostly anamorphic, was nice. Um, the uh, I saw an IMAX, which was insanely impressive. I, I think it was one of those what they call mini IMAX, like it was only eighty million stories tall instead of a hundred million or whatever. I they, got you to know, see the hundred million press screening IMAX. Yeah, well. I got early with my wife. We sat up the back middle. Yeah. Um, best seats ever. Uh, what about you, Matt? Did you guy. see it in IMAX? I am a special guy. Yeah. Did you see yeah, it in IMAX? I did. Yeah. I got, okay. I got to see it in IMAX. So, it looked superb. So, Jason, just tell everybody about what was happening in the IMAX version, just so that people didn't see it that way. I just explained like, uh, how it was shot and, and the, way the, the way it kind of worked in the cinema. Uh, well, they shot a mixture of, was it uh, eight perf and what's the other perf in IMAX? Six. Uh, six, I think. 
and then a mixture of also anamorphic film and uh, red epic. So they did what a lot of films do these days, where they switch the aspect uh, with letterbox on uh, IMAX shots versus non-IMAX shots. And I don't, I don't, it doesn't bother me at all. Uh, uh, I love it. Yeah, I mean, it's actually more impressive when you see the letterbox going away, and you're like, that's an IMAX shot. For real, you know, it looks insane. So the first time I saw that was on Dark Knight, and I just could not get over how the opening shot impressed the bajillicans out of me. And the same thing happened on this. That opening shot of the train station, as soon as that happened, I was like, oh, this is going to be good. Um, It is is remarkable. The other thing I I was surprised about, I um, I don't know if you guys saw Dark Knight on DVD, uh, Blu-ray, but on Blu-ray, the IMAX shots look better. It's as if, um, you know, mathematically that shouldn't be the case, but it is. You can actually sort of tell that the IMAX stuff was IMAX. So I'm really looking forward to Dark Knight Rises or the Batman Rises or whatever the new um, third film is going to be when that comes out because even more IMAX. But um, I was just wondering, like, uh, in terms of this one, do you agree that, like, it had more humor, like that Brad Bird gave it? Because it seemed to me that, like, a bunch of tech in it, for example, didn't work. You know, the phone, he has to hit it to get it to self-destruct. There's, like, a bunch of... It was a bit yeah, more it was, grounded. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of that obviously had to do with Simon Pegg, who was absolutely brilliant in the but, film. Just, but even that, you know, that scene where they're getting in the train and he's trying to do the eye scan and the train's already moving. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It was hysterically was a, funny, right? It was like, yes, yeah, let's that have was this, great. this, this ridiculously complicated way of getting into something, which, oh, by the way, isn't going to work very well if the train starts moving. Which is a sort of snide-ass comment that we tend to make on the show. Um, but normally, you know, filmmakers just skip over that stuff. I, I, I thought that was really, really good. Um, yeah, and then they get to the Burj, and, oh, yeah, we'll do this. Oh, sorry, it's not going to work. Now you have to climb 11 stories at 1,800 feet. <laughs> yeah, and then know. one glove stops working, and right. it's like, what? And it flew away and stuck to the window, you know, two things over. Yeah. It, yeah, it was, it, was, it was refreshing, honestly, that they clearly understood the genre and what they were working with and were self-referential without it being uh, ridiculous. They didn't poke fun at it. But they right. had fun with it. Hey, um, Matt, as an Englishman, um, did you feel that you were watching a really good Bond film? Uh, to some degree, but I think you're so used to uh, the Ethan Hunt character now that you just kind of switch into kind of, I'm watching Tom Cruise now. And so to some degree I did, but I think I was just kind of uh, focused on on uh, his character and not really thinking around it. It's interesting what you were saying with, with regards to the humor. I also felt with the character that they they didn't make him quite so superhero-ish. Yeah. So uh, he, he kind of made mistakes, got beat up, got hurt. And I think that um, grounded it a bit more in reality as well. You felt a bit more for the character. Now, so, Tom's yeah, a couple of years older than me, so obviously extremely young still. Um, but <laughs> do we feel that, uh, that on screen... Because I felt there was some kind of nod to him not being... Um, the young kind of buck that he was back in one, he was less cheeky, you know, it was less of that kind of uh, risky business kind of smirk and more of the resigned to having to do some stuff that was going to hurt or be difficult. And, and I thought that worked well. It, it didn't look like you were trying to make Tom act younger than he is, which is obviously, as I say, you know, very young still. It wasn't no, the no, night day, Tom Cruise. Yeah, exactly. No. And I think that's good. I think it worked better that way. Um, and so hopefully that'll open the door for more of those kind of roles. Because as I say, I, I, uh, I really enjoyed seeing him on screen. Okay, so let's move to the visual effects now. Um, and uh, I'll start with you, Jason. Do, do you know, 
let's start at the beginning of the film. There's the breakout from the jail, which is not a huge effect sequence, but then there's the destruction uh, in Russia. Do you want to just talk through what you thought of that stuff? Uh, I liked... I liked all that stuff that was uh, – I mean the, the, the opening shot – I mean opening shot of Tom Cruise is a visual effect shot because he's throwing that rock, which is clearly not real. Um, not from a – not from a – because the shot wasn't good, but just because obviously consistently throwing a rock against three walls and catching it might be a little tedious for them to do practically. Uh, and then all the way through to the floor collapsing – in the prison was nice, subtle, and yeah, and then obviously the big money shot in the opening sequence is the is the Kremlin, which was I didn't realize wasn't wasn't actually there. I mean, I assumed they went to Russia and then just you know when it came time to destroy the building, they did a uh, you know their sims of of a CG replacement, but they actually were never even in Russia for any moving plates. Yeah, no, they weren't. Uh, and you can hear a bit about that. Actually, we've got a really, well, I think it's a, I hope you guys agree, <laughs> it's an interview with that I did with uh, John Knoll at ILM. I actually had, um, I had a, I mean, I've got to thank ILM for this. We actually had like two hours with John Knoll sitting in the soundstage of uh, the motion capture suite just discussing this film and another thing that will run in a little, I can't talk about just yet. And uh, it was just bliss to be able to have that kind of in-depth chance to talk to him and that part of that obviously edited is in fx guide tv uh with also uh, brad burden matt do you want to talk about that destruction sim because obviously you, you're you know uh, a 3d artist what did you think because um, john made the joke in that uh and you can see in the interview that it was a really good sim but it was actually hidden by a lot of dust yeah, it, there was a lot of dust in that sequence, but it, it looked fantastic. A lot of dust in the whole film, actually, from an effects point of view, but yeah, yeah go on. Yeah, it was very good. So um, from, my, from what I can remember from the, the interview you did with John, it was, um, it was a rigid sim um, on the building um, that was fractured uh, using uh, something built into Xeno, I think their in-house yeah. tool. And um, they use their Fizzbang, is that how they... Well, Fizzbang is the... Yeah, there's, so there's a couple of... Um, of things that obviously Xeno is their in-house proprietary tool, but uh, the physics engine that is used for a lot of stuff that they do is Fizzbam, which is out of um, uh, Stanford, I'm going to say. And in fact, that actually, interestingly, that a lot of that, um, not all of it, but a significant part of the Fizzbam stuff has actually gone semi-open source in the last, what, 18 months or certainly the last 12 months those libraries are up because um, it isn't ILM exclusively that uses it. Pixar's used it. Disney uses it. Um, and it's a very, very good uh, physics engine which feeds all their fluid sims and a lot of that other stuff. But I think some of the stuff that in that sequence wasn't using the FizzBam physics engine per se, but obviously you tend to use that stuff for collision detection, which is what you do in destruction sims. I, I thought that it didn't matter that you couldn't see under the dust cloud, though... I think we're heavily influenced uh, creatively by the Twin Towers collapse, which had such a dust storm hiding the latter part of the towers going down. And that is such a visually strong image being so so uh, sort of etched into people's minds that we sort yeah. of expect to see big dust clouds. And I guess, Jason, you'd know that better than anyone being a New Yorker. Uh, yes, I saw that out my window. So it You was, actually saw uh, it go down live, did you? Oh, everything, yeah. I did not know um, that. Yes. Uh, but, I, yeah, I mean, the sim was, the, I, like I said, I, it, 
the fact that the entire Russian area was um, CG made up of um, just you know uh, uh, reference photos, not even any moving footage uh, that they sent the crew to to Red Square. Uh, it was it was a beautiful sim. I mean, everything fell perfectly, and there's shitloads of dust, obviously. But that's really what happens when the explosion comes from the bottom of the building, uh, and everything implodes, kind of cantilevers over it. I, I don't know. I it was it was really solid. Um, so or, that or many, not solid by the end of it. Not many to in any way trivialize the uh, the attack on on America, but I mean, I don't know. You said he sort out the window. Like how accurate? Because I mean, I've never seen anything like that, but you obviously have. Did it? Um, well, that gets into conspiracy theory and where the explosion came from. Okay, I didn't uh, know there was a in conspiracy the World Trade Center, theory. but I won't get into it. But you know, uh, 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 a building imploding from explosion at the bottom is going to fall differently than an explosion at the top and gravity and all that kind of stuff. So, this the Kremlin obviously isn't as tall as the World Trade Center, um, so the gravity is insanely different, but. But in terms of dust cloud, yeah, I mean the dust cloud was was in this because there was more forceful upward motion of the of the dust because the explode there was an actual explosion at the base in the building that was forcing dust up and out as opposed to the World Trade Center minus conspiracy theory where the building is collapsing from the top and the air is forcing the dust up from the bottom. So to me, it it didn't look. It didn't look similar. Uh, it looked more like an explosion in the Kremlin one. Uh, so, but it—I mean, it, it it felt real. It didn't feel like, all right, here's a big CG sequence because clearly they didn't really blow up the Kremlin. So obviously, we the audience is smart enough to know that it is fake CG, but that it it fits seamlessly into the into the story. And I I thought it was executed actually perfectly. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's it, no one from uh, the cast was actually in Russia. Um, Matt, how hard do you reckon it is to do a good destruction sim like that these days? It's probably getting easier because there's more uh, there's more software on the market. But I mean, to get something that looks that good is not just going to be a kind of an out of the box click. Um, so it can be done, but I think what they've done um, just looked amazing. And one of the, the interesting things was, I don't know whether you picked up on it, but in the news coverage later when um, the story cuts to the, the guy's family. Watching and, it um, in, the, in the room? Yeah. Yep. There, there's quite a lot more footage of it there that you didn't actually see um, in the main sequence. And you get to see more of the, uh, the, the explosion and more of the, the sims taking place there, even though they're on kind of a, kind of a black and white TV. Right, because it's a higher shot, I think, in the TV in the room. Yeah, it looked the, like it was taken from a helicopter or something. The Ethan shots are, are lower and uh, and kind of more representative of his experience, where right, it kind of yeah. loses it. Um, we did. The, a, um, so sorry, I was going to say go we ahead. we did a an art of destruction piece on FX Guide, where we did a pretty detailed run on destruction sims that covered Fizzbam as well as finite element analysis stuff. Obviously, you're a three D artist. What what is your take on where this stuff is at? Because it seems like Houdini is predominantly what's being used outside, say, an ILM or a um, MPC or somewhere? Yeah, from what I've seen, I mean, things like Maya has it built in, but um, the simulations that Houdini can do are really kind of secondary, second to none, really. Um, so most people that I know of that are doing this kind of work are either 
doing in a proprietary system like Dina might have here in the UK, or they're just turning straight to Houdini because it has such great flexibility. Though, interestingly, um, the stuff that MPC picked up on, which is the finite element analysis stuff, um, that is based on some uh, stuff that was done by Pixellux in uh, 2008, I'm going to say, um, Sid Graphover, I think they announced it, but that was picked up and exclusively used in Star Wars The Force Unleashed, I think. But that came out of that, and so those algorithms are, got incorporated in, what, 2012 of Maya? Is that right? The um, Yeah, I think they're in the... Uh, the, the DMM. DMM, yeah. Sim, yeah, which, uh, which uh, looks fantastic from what I've seen. Yeah, so that's... It's sort of interesting that, because obviously from a mathematical point of view, trying to do a finite element analysis is mother load hard. Um, the fact yeah. that these guys at Pixellux managed to um, to get that happening in a game engine is just unbelievable to me. And look, I, I'm sticking my neck out here, but I'm willing to say that within the next three years that the Academy will actually recognize the uh, the guys at Pixellux because that was a real... If, if things go the way that I personally think they will, which is more finite element analysis stuff, um, that'll be the turning point where we said... It came back into the um, into the feature film realm because obviously finite element analysis has been around for years, but um, but not in films. But it was look, it was used in X Men really, really well. That being said, I never felt like the ILM non finite element analysis stuff, the stuff that they use out of FISBAM, has ever looked anything but really good. I mean, um, so clearly you can do it. You know, and people do. And the question, I guess, is how much do we care if it's mathematically accurate, if it looks cool? Yeah, it was interesting in, in the article um, or in the interview that you had with uh, John Noel when he was talking about the way the system worked, that they had almost like a slider to go between how accurate it was and how uh, quickly it, it ran the sim. And I guess depending on what the shot is and how much you see and how quickly you need to get it out, that kind of control can be incredibly useful just to dial back the accuracy and say I don't need everything kind of mathematically correct as long as it's doing 95% the right thing then that's going to be good enough for this particular shot and I guess with other shots you may say I'll give it the time and I'll just crank it right up to to give you the best possible uh, mathematical solve it can. Yeah, some of the best ILM work in terms of just really beautiful, detailed destruction stuff like that is the stuff they did in Avatar where the, and I'm going to forget the name of the ship now, but it's the ship that comes down onto the tree near the end. It's like one of the, not, not the main tree, the one that blows up, though that is gorgeous. But there's a sequence where they're starting to bring down um, the ships and there's a tree and this ship kind of spins into a tree and cracks off a limb and stuff. And I, I know that at ILM, they were particularly internally proud of that because the sim got reused in the background of a bunch of other shots. But um, it was incredibly complicated to deal with the interaction of the bending and twisting of the wood on the tree that then snaps. And then, of course, the, uh, the destruction or the denting, as it were, in the, in the ship. Can you remember what those, ship, those ships were called? Those, I can't. I'm, I'm not good on, on Avatar um, gear. But yeah, but anyway... Um, in this, I think that um, for those people that don't really know, Matt, there's really two stages, isn't there? There's like, like if I get the Kremlin model, and, and I think it was hysterical that they bought that off a, free, like, you know, like a shareware thing on the internet. But anyway, um, <laughs> when you get a model like that, you have to effectively pre-break it, which there's a bunch of tools for, and then you have to run a sim on it. 
And then, of course, that may cause secondary sims to be run, like dust plumes or particle sims or right, whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's a pretty standard approach, isn't it? That idea of having a pre-break and um, and then a and then a sim pass. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Normally, you would kind of fracture it the way that you want it to break apart, big bits, small bits. I want this part of the building to come off separate to these other bits. Once you've got that prepped and you've almost art-directed that part, you can then go in and say, right, let's apply the physics and, and based on how I've fractured it and broken it, now actually run the, the simulation that's going to break it apart, blow it up, what have you. Jason, just changing gears, after that scene and Ethan's being extracted, there's a scene that I call now the inception shot, which is the inside of the car as it uh, gets blown off the bridge. Yep. Uh, and I think those sorts of shots, which are relatively new in terms of we've seen, sort of seen them come in recently now, they're starting to become kind of de facto cool, are cracker shots. What do you think of that when they're in the car and it's suddenly you sort of getting it from their point of view rather than just a big wide shot showing a car flipping? The thing that I liked about that shot, and both I went to see it with my brother, and we both looked at each other when that shot came in because they trick you. Because normally you're prepped with all this overcutting and and over coverage that you get in a lot of these action movies. That scene, they kept you in the car the whole time because the scene is in the car. But typically you would get wherever the fire is coming from externally and blah, 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 blah. But they kept you in the car, so you actually had no idea that the car was going to flip. Yeah, normally you'd cut to a guy on top of a building and he pulls up the rocket launcher on his arm and then you have another shot of the car, another shot to the guy, and boom, yeah. It's like everything's over-motivated. And in this, it was perfectly done because there's already enough drama. Everyone's been shot. They're trying. You you assume that the car is going to crash because the driver's been shot and then all of a sudden you're upside down and twisting and you're like, what the hell's going on? And it was perfectly placed in the edit. I I would call attention more to the edit than the visual effects first. But don't you think also it was well-directed? Because we had that lovely moment of humor where he says, uh, that is, unless you overpowered us and... and, and Oh, that was brilliant when when um tom wilkinson gave the whole and they did that twice in the movie with the with the the arms dealer too well i couldn't i could be arrested if i told you the code was 625 but you know if i didn't tell you that then you may never actually find the bomb that you know to do that sort of backwards yeah information delivery was was awesome but i think with the car it was great because we had some tension that he's been arrested then suddenly you realize that the, he's being helped and you've just relaxed into that sort of smile and I certainly had it wasn't like a, a laugh out loud joke and then they're upside down and going off and it is it really catches up off guard I think you're right it's really well edited and it's also a great setup as from a character perspective of Jeremy Renner's character because you assume he's an uh, an analyst which is what they tell you and then when they escape he doesn't know how to do anything so it completely cements the fact that he's an analyst. So later on when he busts out with his super karate moves or whatever, it is a surprise to the audience and to all the other characters. So it's a great story point too, even just sort of buried in the in the action. I did love John Knowles joking about how uh, Brad like actually came up with specific reference of bubbles from coming up yeah. with, because he's just that got that much attention to detail. Because the uh, car, the car impacting in the water from under, and that's the other thing you never see the car, an external shot of the car hit the water. I don't believe it's no. in the car and then underwater. You do have shots car. once they're underwater of guys firing into the water, but right, I think but that's I mean, more to establish. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm going to say that's more to establish the getaway um, with the phosphorus thing. 
Yeah. Um, and also, and that was that's all, where the bullets are coming from. Yeah, I think it was also nice that he actually explained that um, in the shot afterwards. You know, he actually explained why he did mm-hmm. it and the distraction. Why would you do that? Yeah, yeah, because it's so nice to not just assume everyone's uber cool and you know, it's yeah. sort of like yeah, well, that's what would happen, kind of thing. Yeah. Now, um, so obviously, the big sequences um, that we haven't discussed yet are. In particular, the the tallest building in the world, and let's hang our star outside. Now, I've, I've got an apology to make. I guess um, I've said in the past you would never get a real star doing that because you'd never get Bond completion on the film, and it just wouldn't happen. And I stand corrected. They actually got Tom Cruise out there, and I have no idea how they got a, a completion Bond to do this because ordinarily there's no way that you would ensure a film of this kind of size if you had your star hanging out there. But they did, and uh, kudos to Cruz for doing it and for Bird for directing it that way. And I have to say, there are some cases where I think it's kind of pointless because it really makes no difference whether it's the star riding the motorbike or or riding on the back of a you know trailer that looks like he's on a motorbike. But in this particular case, I thought there were two aspects of that. One, I thought it did add tremendous authenticity to the sequence. And secondly, it gave them a really good hook for the publicity going into the film because you really yeah. wanted to see that in IMAX when you knew it was Cruise. It was almost as if they they knew the audience was sophisticated enough that many people would have seen the publicity and everything else. And it's like, yeah, let's just tell them that. And then they'll go, okay, this is not something I've seen before, literally, <laughs> and, uh, and have a look at it. And in IMAX, it looked pretty bloody good, don't you think, Jason? Yeah, and... What I liked about it is also maybe it's a nod to the audience. Maybe it was like a dare to the audience, but to say we're basically going to show you a de facto shot breakdown in the behind the scenes stuff before you see the movie. And you know it's all fake because you see 8 million cables and wires and 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 uh, whatnot. And then when you see the movie, you don't see any of it and you're still on the edge of your seat, which normally a, a regular film would 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 hide all that information beforehand so they wouldn't want to blow the the tension of the being on the burge. So I actually give them a lot of credit for respecting the audience enough to know that if they make the if they make the scene work, then the audience will buy it regardless of the information they have prior going into the scene. Yeah. And Matt, even though they it would have been really hard for them to paint out the wires and as John Knoll says, the reflections of the wires and the reflections of the reflections of the wires, the fact that he was there were scenes when he was on a cable anyway because he had a rope to descend and stuff. It sort of meant that the wire thing wasn't so much of a problem because it wasn't as if you expected him to have no wires ever. So in your head, yes, he had less wires, but there was somehow for me that great scene where he sort of kicks out from the side to spin around to jump back into the into the room. It, I mean, it just looked and felt, and I knew that obviously they'd painted out some safety wires. Didn't care. Still looked like a cool thing to get you know tom cruise to do don't you agree yeah no it looked excellent and it reminded me i think it was probably uh your your mission impossible 2 that has the start of um tom doing some rock climbing somewhere or other not, i can't okay, remember you where really can't call it my mission impossible 2 it's really not 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 <laughs> i'm not claiming i have no i have no end credit on that film i just did <laughs> previous on the flame um yeah uh yeah there was rock climbing on the on the front of that but i don't know somehow that was cool, the rock climbing at the front of MI2. But, but it was nothing compared with this. No, I mean, the IMAX this, helped, right? It was spectacular to see that stuff. Yeah, it, 
this sequence had my favorite shot from the entire film in, uh, which when I saw it, I just wanted to shout, stop the movie and rewind. I want to see that again. Um, but it just looks spectacular. And as you said, al- although they obviously painted out um, some of the cables and, and safety lines, it still didn't take away from just this kind of the suspense of, of sitting, looking at it, thinking this is very crazy, but very cool. Yeah. The rope is I mean, it was a little, a little, if you want to get nitpicky, it was a little ridiculous that he was holding his complete body weight up by his hands, more or less, because, you know, he had his legs side by side on, I guess John Noel called them the vortex tubes. He had his yeah. feet on the side. He was doing like a pressure climb, but yeah, at 1,800 feet, I mean, no, I know, but I'm just saying it, it, it. Like, if you really wanted to dig into the physics of, of an action movie, you'd be like, all right, dude, you're like 1,800 feet up with just these suction gloves. But, again, the scene was created and well enough that you didn't, you didn't actually think about it. You didn't stop to think about it because there was so much tension and, and uh, uh, story points on the line that that's all you focused on, which is where you should be. Yeah. yeah. I think the other thing is it had some of the funniest humor in it. I mean, there was that thing about, you know, the we're going to have to go outside that you already mentioned. But there was that whole kind of the rope isn't long enough. No, shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the uh, 26 minutes till door knock, 25 minutes till door knock, the, the countdown yeah. is not helping. <laughs> it, was, um, it was funny. Um, and also the scene that followed it with the whole kind of, uh, you know, classic Mission Impossible kind of... Uh, double room trick thing what's a doobie i mean i do agree with you that obviously in a film like this there's just you know ridiculously stupid stuff like the automatic put over the door number renumbering machine that they yeah. happen to have <laughs> for, a, for a group that's got no support and no backup the remarkably useful tool that was exactly yeah. the right size and, the, and everything else but anyway um but that i think we completely forgive it for that because that's the kind of movie it is right we're not seeing um and it's no worse, sorry, a lot better than most Bond films in terms of uh, gadgets and um, and stuff. Um, okay, and then we have the big uh, sandstorm coming. I-, I thought the sandstorm was slightly uh, contrived from a plot point of view, but I was okay with it again in this genre of film. But I thought that the um, the sequence of having the chase through the uh, sandstorm was excellent. I mean, I really thought that worked well. Um, and the sandstorm was a good device for making that chase kind of more interesting um obviously in the close-up shots they could do some stuff but the rest of the time matt that was a lot of particle stuff and uh and big kind of uh 3d uh, dust clouds yeah that's right it sounded like um from what i've read and what i heard that they could really only cover an area of, of about 60 feet of kind of shredded cardboard and smoke and then they obviously had holes that needed to be filled in with um, either practical elements that were comped in or, I guess, uh, CG um, particle elements that they then put in. But it was a great shot. I really enjoyed it. And I found both times I saw the movie, I was almost straining forward in my seat to try and look into the sand to see what was going on. So it definitely had the impact that I'm guessing they wanted it to have. Um, yeah. Somebody posted on a... I think it was on IMDb, but it was um, trivia about the film that, that they didn't shoot that sequence in uh, IMAX. They shot it in 35. So as the film grain would give the impression of the blowing sand because actual sand wouldn't register on film. That's the kind of dumbass, I don't know anything about filmmaking comment that people put out and goes into popular, you know, 
belief and then people quote it again because uh, it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard that you would uh, imagine that shooting on full 35 stock is going to give you enough of a sandstorm from film grown to make it look like uh, that was what was going on. So let's assume that whoever wrote that has actually never worked on a film in their life. Um, that sandstorm and that it, it is hard for that to register on film. Yeah. Um, that's true. Uh, like rain is hard to register, but I can tell you putting 35 millimeter film in is not the solution. Um, Much less brown. Yeah, like every film looks like it's in a sandstorm. I mean, hello. I don't know whoever put that in IMDb ought to be taken out and it's quietly but shot. Yep. What I liked about the sandstorm sequence is, again, it sort of hit on this. I mean, there was a there was a very subtle nature to a lot of the setups of the scenes and the action scenes, like the car going into the water where they sort of release the tension with the joke and then bam, they button it with this you know car crash from inside. Same thing, you get the tension of he's got to climb on the building and he's got to do this, he's got to do that, and it sort of relaxes a little bit. And far from the distance, and for a couple shots before they acknowledge it, you see the sandstorm. So you're just kind of like, oh, what's that? Like as the audience, because you're seeing it in IMAX. And then finally they're like, that's a sandstorm. Okay, second element of tension added to the sequence. Yeah. And you know what's nice? Like I saw um, uh, Sherlock Holmes during the week, uh, two. And boy, talk about a two film. This was like classic sequel stuff. Like we had a really good shot in the first film, which was slow-mo with the fire at the uh, factory or the port where... Everybody went, wow, so we need to do that again. Okay, this time we'll do it in a forest. Um, Instead of fire, we'll do splintering trees. Right, let's tick that box. Okay, what else was good in the first film? Oh, there was a joke like this. All right, let's do another one of those over here. And what I liked about this film is I didn't feel like I was just seeing the same gags from the earlier films because there was that great shot, I think, in three where Tom is running away from the explosion and gets hurtled sideways into a car. Do you remember that one? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And I was they did the it in this attack one on the too, bridge, isn't it? But they didn't do it like they didn't didn't okay, there was a bit of it in this one and that was the only point that I saw it, but it wasn't like this film was just taking any other no. previously successful shot and replicating it in a new environment because it seemed to work last time. Well, he gets hurled twice. He gets a Kremlin hurl and he gets a bridge hurl. Yeah, but okay, but, but it wasn't the same side impact pull him on a rock no, I'm, to the no, right. No, I was just kind pointing of, out the yeah. physics. I think I think it's it's a fine line, but it just didn't feel like this was full-on sequel territory where it bloody did on um, Sherlock Holmes. Um, well, I think in this, in this movie, it was really interesting to see a director that comes from primarily an animated background who is used to being able to do whatever he wants. And now he has to be, uh, you know, he has to make decisions on set that are finite. He has to make decisions on certain things that, are finite that will affect the, the the visual effects later that he clearly understands at least the maybe not from a live action compositing background but at least from an animated and how the animations are going to work background into live action like how he had to make all the he apparently made insane comments on the car hitting the water impact from the bridge crash underwater which was a completely CG car. So they could manipulate it. They had to obviously work on all the bubbles. All the trails of the bullets were all CG with bubbles coming off those. And apparently he had minute detail uh, input on every little bit of that because as an animator, now he's in his, in his realm and can, can manage those things. But I think as a live-action director, he was able to 
tread those waters pretty successfully. Well, now we also spoke to Moen, who's from the ILM Singapore office, and Singapore handled a lot of that dust cloud sequence. And I think it's safe to say now that the division line between ILM Singapore and ILM in California is got to a point that it's pretty much immaterial. It's obvious in like transformers and stuff when you hear the shot breakdowns that the hard shots are coming out of California and good shots, but not the really killer hard shots were coming out of Singapore. But in this film, it felt like there was a just like it was not like a completely separate office that was doing the easy stuff. It was just a different office doing different stuff. Uh, and I thought that the Singapore stuff worked well and looked every bit as good as the stuff that was coming out of California. And, and I think that's important because you'd hate to think of there being ILM A-grade work and ILM B-grade work, wouldn't you agree, Matt? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I was thinking that you were saying earlier that they'd worked on um, obviously the uh, underwater sequence there that we were just talking about. I think they also worked on the outside shots of the Kremlin where... Um, is it Jane? It puts up the balloon with the little video camera on. And all those shots just looked great. So, yeah, you definitely, watching the film, you didn't think this has been handed off to another facility, even if it was kind of another division of ILM or another office. It all just felt like it fitted together very well. There was no quality change at all. It just looked great. So I wanted to jump to the end sequence because I want to chat with you guys about two bits that I think are really interesting, but, but maybe from slightly different um, points of view. The first one, obviously, we're jumping through a bit of stuff, but there's obviously a huge climax at the end, and that climax revolves around kind of, you know, can they rewire the thing, and there's sort of multiple things going on, and that's all fine, and yes, it's a bit contrived, and yes, I've never been able to cable anything to make it work first time I tried plugging everything in, but leave that aside for a second. There's the car sequence where he's trying to deal with the case in the car lift thing, and then there's the driving around in the... um, in the sort of super cool BMW with the heads-up display stuff. Let's discuss the heads-up display stuff, stuff, and I'd like to go on to the, the car garage. Um, as John discussed in that interview, they basically wrecked their concept car first morning out. I mean, they had that car for four days, this one-off car that wasn't meant to go about 40 miles an hour, and they, they wrecked it first day out. So then it was CG replaced, and not by a mega team of first unit, but literally, oh, as John said, like three or four guys that were by themselves in Mumbai and trying to shoot with just a 5D to get plates and stuff. I didn't pick it at all. And I was looking for it. I knew that before I'd seen it. That concept car stuff, anyone else have a problem with it? I thought it was perfect. I, was like, I thought it was real the ridiculous. whole time. And, and you just wouldn't know that they had to replace the car because it literally failed almost immediately. <laughs> um, <laughs> or that all the interiors were on a blue screen. Like it didn't... Didn't didn't interiors of the car matched perfectly? Yeah, I and mean, I, it was and I really hate good. that. I mean, I hate it too. I just think it often looks super fake, especially when you've got an actress in there, so that you want her to look good. Um, and Matt, I mean, you agree? Like it just looked spotless. It looked it looked great. I mean, I I was definitely looking really hard at it, and it was interesting when you were talking about the five D that it was just kind of eight bit um, maps grabbed for kind of reflection and lighting, and it and the car just looks superb outside all the time so i'm guessing somehow they managed to get the data they needed off that 5d in a format that they could put the reflections back onto the cg car yeah i mean it just i've got that i've got the 5d i've got it with the um the you know 
8 mil lens that they used, and it works great in stills, which we use for HDR. But the second you go to video mode, it gets cropped. So <laughs> they didn't even have a full spherical 8-bit H.264 image to play with. So they took multiple shots off the rear and the front of another car and used those to get the reflection feeds. But really, I mean, you wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go into doing shots for a near sort of hero sequence on a mega multi-Hollywood film and all you've got is a 5D and not quite the right lens. I mean, it just seems just... When you're nuts. already when you're already handicapped um, on completing a... Se- you know, uh, uh, getting all your data for the sequence on a sequence you weren't prepared to do. And of course, they didn't on plan it that, that way. It just happened, right? So, I mean, right. it, I'm not criticizing them. Like, it's brilliant that they managed to pull it off. But, I mean, I would just be so shit scared. I mean, I would, just, <laughs> I would call it like, we just can't do this. I mean, you're insane. And yet, uh, they completely proved me wrong. So, there you go. Okay, now, on the same bent, that was a CG car put into the scene. Um, I want to talk about the, um, and I don't know this actually made it into the interview. So, but, you know, the uh, car garage thing, mm-hmm. they did yeah, have yeah. sections of that built but the rest of it was cg now it was obviously a fairly futuristic ish kind of um setup and a quite an elaborate robotic car thing to create lots of you know incredibly threatening car movements that would cause a fight scene to be interesting get away from the plot for a second did you think it looked visually coherent yeah for me i mean i was again looking at it really hard because i i knew a little bit of detail the second time um i saw it and I was looking for the joins. I was looking for anything that would give it away as not being right. Reflections, shadows, anything like that that just didn't tie in where where the CG element matched the live action and it just fitted together really nicely. And I'm guessing that was one of the sequences they used a different renderer on and the renderer just looked great. Yeah, they used Arnold for that. And I was stunned. Um, I think one of the reasons we didn't include it in the edit is I actually like moved from relaxed interviewer to what? Say what? <laughs> because John uh, suddenly said, yeah, yeah, we, sh- we shot Arnold on that. Now, for those of you that don't know, Render Man, which obviously is Pixar, started, because Pixar did, inside uh, Lucas. So hence, ILM had a relationship with Pixar. And that extended to Render Man to the point at which ILM um, has an infinite license of Render Man. I mean, this isn't sort of confidential knowledge. Um, they have the ultimate Render Man license. And people will say to Pixar, you know, God, it's so good that ILM does all this great stuff with Renderman. What a great, you know, sales tool for you. And they'll go, yeah, it's the best free customer we've ever had. Um, so in the sense that they don't, you know, pay for it like yeah. anybody else. Now, that's fair enough. There's no problem with that. Except for the fact that if you've got Renderman on an infinite kind of license with the render farm of ILM, you know, you'd, you'd think it would be a hard ass to suddenly say, yeah, I don't want to use that anymore the renderer of choice for most feature films and say, I want to try this other one, which, of course, is a ray tracer primarily, whereas RenderMan is a hybrid. Matt, this is really your turf. So, what you know, I mean, what's your opinion on Arnold? It seems to me surprising that that happened, but maybe not. What do you think? Um, I've actually had a chance to play with Arnold and um, the results that I've got out of it, and I think a lot of people have, and you can, you can go onto YouTube and, and there's quite a lot of uh, information on it on YouTube, people have done some demos and things. It it just creates a really nice look, and it's interesting that um, whether they went to Arnold because of the system they were using. I think this was 
one of the first um, uses of the Foundry's Katana software. And Katana uses um, either Arnold or RenderMan as its uh, primary renderer out of that software. And obviously, Katana and Arnold are both um, coming out of um, Sony Picture Image Works. So whether they well, decided to go Well, that's not strictly true, actually. Because, oh, okay. Well, in, in, I mean, when I say strictly true, it is partially true. Uh, because Katana obviously is now the foundry, um, but Kat- uh, uh, yeah, Katana's now the foundry. But uh, Arnold wasn't invented in Sony. It was like Arnold came along. Sony hired the guy that was doing Arnold. He worked at Sony for a number of years, but he's actually since left, and he's no longer at Sony. Though Sony is an Arnold house, I and mean, they shoot all their three D animated features like Arthur Christmas and stuff using Arnold. Um, right, right. But it's not as if it, it, just to give it credit, it's not as if they wrote the software from scratch kind of thing. It's not like quite the same way that Katana was, in fact, their invention. No, no, yeah. sorry, my fault. Matt, you have, do you run through any Arnold stuff in your Maya class? Uh, no. On um, FXPHD? I, I, would, uh, I would like to, but I'm kind of under NDA on on Arnold, so I'm, I'm oh. not allowed to show it. But we'd like um, to do some Arnold classes on <laughs> FX PhD in coming terms. We want yes, to do that. Yes. Um, so maybe that could be arranged. <laughs> yeah. It's not the only, only ray tracer of interest because at SIDGRAPH Asia, V-Ray 2 came out, and V-Ray 2, I think, is, is, is interesting. Have you looked at that, man? Yeah, yeah. That's kind of a brute force renderer, isn't it? That yeah. works really well. I think they've used that. Brute force Monte Carlo, on, baby. Yeah, that's right. So that was used, I think, extensively on uh, DD's Real Steel, um, and that looked great. I actually, it, well, obviously. I actually have a T-shirt that says uh, "Brute Force Monte Carlo." That's how we roll, bitches. <laughs> I, 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 cool. I, I love um, ray tracing. In fact, that's where I started. I literally started my entire career writing code for for ray tracers. Uh, but the reason I love it is it's a fairly purist approach, and and so I think that's an important point because you can ray trace in RenderMan, can't you? Yeah, definitely, yes. The thing is, though, that there's this sense of when you get to some of the... This is particularly the case, I think, when you move to uh, Maxwell, that you just lose a lot of the buttons because it's like a lot less setting options and stuff and more just here's the darn thing, render the bugger, will you? Um, And that's the case with some of the GPU renderers as well, right? Like... uh, um, 3D Studio Max now ships with what four renderers? Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I think I, I think there was a renderer called Turtle um, a while back, and I think Autodesk has has bought that, and that's now being used for a lot of the games work they're doing. And I think that's a a, a GPU renderer. So I'm guessing that could be one of them that's been included with uh, with Max. Just buy me some time and I'll find out what those four are because I actually I, I can tell you right now I found it sorry because I was running them down the other night for something else uh, so Scanline's the old one in Max then you've got Mental Ray of course um, which let's face it now it's part of NVIDIA I think their number one client in the entire world is Autodesk um, yes I can believe that <laughs> and you've got iRay which is the hardware accelerated CUDA CUDA version um, of the uh, stuff and then you've got Quicksilver which is DirectX shader, right? Right, and yes. Quicksilver is, uh, what, pretty cool, but it's even more, is it? It's pretty much just to basically just give it the file, isn't it, kind of renderer? I think so, yeah. I've never used it myself, but I think it's, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, so this simplicity of setting up your pipeline 
is part of it. But I mean, that can't be a factor for ILM. I mean, for ILM to go to Arnold, it's got to be because they're going to get really good ray tracing results because it's not as if ILM is afraid of image complexity or, or programming complexity. No, no. They obviously have seen something in it that they um, that either they just wanted to experiment with or just felt it was going to give a better result for for those particular shots than, than they thought they could get with RenderMan. So it's definitely going to be interesting to to see whether they're going to stick with with Arnold for, for other shots in the future. Yeah, I definitely got the impression that it was more of an experiment than anything else. Um, and John Knoll in particular personally wanting to check it out. Um, there's not actually a lot of information on Arnold. Like if you go to, I don't know if it's changed, but you used to go to the Solid Angle website uh, and you used to just have, I don't know if it still does, just a basically a holder page thing and you couldn't get anything yeah, past that. Yeah, it's still there, yes. Right. Uh, which isn't the most useful thing, but it, it is clearly being used at the higher-end facilities. Do you've got a feeling that it's going to... Exp- well, you can't really talk about it, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> what I can say is behind that white screen is the is the beta um, wiki, which has a huge amount of information on it. Right. So, um, yeah, I'm, uh, it is, I think it's going to definitely pick up. It feels like it's going to become a very dominant renderer. Because wouldn't sure. you kind of agree that for the first time in years, rendering or renderers is kind of an interesting hot topic. It used to be, well, you had a free mental ray and that was good. And if you wanted to do feature films, you'd get Render Man and that was really, really good. And that was pretty much the, the game apart from some individual renderers with some individual programs. Um, actually, I should say that didn't... I'm pretty sure I'm, yeah, I'm right in saying this, uh, though I haven't followed up on this yet, that the guys at um, Houdini... Uh, got a technical Oscar for their stuff on there. On Mantra? Um, on in-house renderer called Mantra? Yeah, because um, uh, the tech Oscars, we're actually going over to cover the Oscars in um, beginning of February. And uh, the only reason I'm hesitating is because um, we saw the, as it was published, the uh, the list of those under consideration. But I'm absolutely sure that Mantra did go through to, to get the technical... Um, achievement award for the micro voxel stuff in mantra yeah 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 it did and there's also obviously 3d delight as well which uh, is being used quite a lot i think image engine are using it they used it on the thing and i think it's been used on a number of other shows we we covered 3d delight as the part of the plug-in for the stuff that goes into nuke to allow you to do rendering in nuke do you see that in out of SIDGRAPH, we did coverage yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, definitely. Um, and it, so that's, I think it's kind of interesting, like it's been a pretty stable area and it seems like, not that everything's up for grabs because no, by no means am I implying that RenderMan's going away because RenderMan isn't, it's magnificent. But it is a more interestingly sort of viable area for discussion than it's been for years, don't you think? Yeah, no, I definitely do. It suddenly feels like, as you said, that there's there's other contenders that, that where in the past you would just kind of brush them aside, now we're making inroads into the into the visual effects kind of film um, area, and the results they're getting look fantastic. So I think more there's more options, which you know can only be good for the industry. Um, I can I can see that obviously RenderMan is going to be still probably the dominant force for quite a long time, but with all these other renderers, it's really just going to add to uh, how you can approach a shot and what you're thinking of using and and whether you want to go with brute force or whether you want a scanline renderer or a ray trace renderer, it just gives you more options, which can only be a good thing. 
Jason, in commercials, almost most of the cars now that are shot for commercials and stuff are done as CG cars. Like, solving mm. CG cars isn't exactly revolutionary. But this end sequence did look pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing they had going for them is that probably almost no one has ever seen a uh, car park like that. Yeah. Uh, I think they based it off something like that in Germany, or somebody said. But, I mean, it looked... It looked like a vending machine, like a like an auto vending machine, and that alone. As soon as I saw it, I started. My brain was like off the movie in a good way, and trying to figure out like how that thing worked. And then they basically showed you how it worked during the fight scene, which I thought was actually very satisfying to my brain, as I was trying to sort of understand how cool it was as a device. Uh, physical device of holding cars, but also um, it w- moving into how they would s- change levels and up and down on cars, and and uh, uh, it was like a good. Uh, it actually reminded me a little bit uh, thematically of the um, uh, uh, luggage belt fight in Toy Story Two, <laughs> where you're like you're moving, you can't stop moving. There's something is moving you, and and and. And, and pushing your, your momentum, but you have certain things you can, obstacles you can jump over or move or change your position, like driving a car off the top of the thing to crush the bad guy, which uh, was pretty brutal. And the guy taking a header intentionally off the thing just to, just to uh, ensure that the bomb would blow up over San Francisco. Jason, can you remind me, because the only thing I've got from my memory about that is a kind of a, I would change is it seemed to me that all the cars were clean, that there weren't a lot of dirty cars, that all the cars were sort of All look very new. Yeah, that was my only criticism of that. It felt like a vending machine in the sense that everything was new and shiny. And if it was people parking their cars and you go to a normal car park, even if they're quite expensive cars, um, you know, not every car is polished within an inch of its life. It just felt a bit shiny and squeaky. And when you said Toy Story, I remember... The suitcases in Toy Story weren't. They were scuffed and marked. Yeah. And did, did, is that anything that struck you when you're watching it, that they all looked a bit too shiny showroomy? I actually didn't think of it until you just mentioned it. And now if I, if I think about the scene, then yeah, you could... It's a detail that jumps out. But it didn't bother me. Also, in a weird way, because you had the Burge, and when they were in Mumbai, they were in that insanely high-end hotel. The whole movie, the, the, the location sort of lived in this high-end area but that so you car had, park was in india right yeah well so was the hotel that they well, were at that the with Burge, uh, wasn't? anish kapoor or whatever oh, no, yeah, when they went yeah, to yeah. india to get the codes yeah, from the yeah. guy yeah no but, but the so, thing is but I mean, if you ever you've been to india like you've driven around india like it's no no i'm just saying i'm just saying really they sort of pristine, tricked you clean into this perky kind of place yeah my um, idea of hell is driving in india uh, i've not had that luxury People, for a start, and you might think this coming from New York, but people in India drive on their horns. I don't think anyone could get more than three <laughs> yards without using their horn. That combined with weaving in and out on people with entire families of four on a motorbike, a single motorbike, it's the scariest place in the world to drive, but those, it's the noisiest place. Well, I don't know about cows, but it's certainly a hell of a lot of cars and motorbikes, and it's noisy, and it's kind of grimy, and it... Yeah. I buy the pristine stuff in Dubai because I have this sense of mega wealth. But India, to me, is not mega wealth. I'm not criticizing India, but it just doesn't strike me as kind of 
oil-rich wealth and clean polish. No, but of. the only reason I said that is because when they're in the hotel, they're you're ta- they have a billionaire and they're in this crazy hotel, and they sort of try to at least push you into that area. They don't ever show the gritty part of Mumbai except for when they're driving really fast through it in an insanely expensive car. Okay. So uh, when they get to the car park, I just assumed it was like an upscale car park, and and I just didn't. I agree with you that it should be. Uh, if I went back and saw it again. Uh, I'd probably be uh, uh, looking for it now that we've had a conversation and I would have seen it twice, but it didn't really jump out at me as, as something that was needed uh, at the time. Doesn't so, mean it wasn't. So have I missed anything incredibly cool and wonderful in um, in the film that we you wanted to discuss? Were there any shots that you didn't like in any particular place? I was going to say there was only one thing that struck me as not quite working. It wasn't an effect shot. It was just the, uh, and we haven't talked about it at all really, it was the kind of the camera projection screen that they used to inch their way down the corridor. <laughs> and uh, when that, when they first set that up, they had um, Tom kind of peeping around the, the corner with his iPad and a, and a kind of a, a camera on a flexi yep. rod. And the position he took the, the, the photo was very close to the edge of the corridor, yet the image that he got was almost from the center of the corridor, and that just struck me as not quite working. But, but wasn't the whole point of that camera thing. tech is that it was working out the eyes of what, who were looking at the screen and then adjusting the yeah, projection accordingly? Right. It was just the original image that he kind of took to do all the renders from was kind of off-center okay. by quite a lot. But that was just me nitpicking. Everything I, else looked great. <laughs> I thought it was fun, ridiculous tech. I totally agree that it was kind of hard to imagine that you could get it to work. But hey, what the heck? Um, what were you going to say, Jason? What, what didn't work for you? Uh, I was going to say I, I, that was the scene I was going to talk about. Honestly, uh, for the same reason, it was like it was almost like visual effects guys making a scene for visual effects guys. Like, look, it's <laughs> projection, it's mapping, it's like everything they're doing anyway but sort of showing it to you in real time with like the stupid super eight movie screen. Like it, it was, I don't know. I really liked it, especially when, when Simon Pegg leans, leans over and you see his face <laughs> yes. projected in the hallway like that. I think the, that kind of stuff like made the effect just hokey enough that, that you were, that you were in, uh, entertained by it instead of tension, really. Like it was a co- comedic tension, more than a more than a like a super spy tension. I um yeah I I hadn't really focused on that scene, but I guess you're right. Like I mean, being a visual effects person, it made perfect sense to me what they were doing and why they were doing it, and the face tracking to adjust for it and stuff. I I don't know, yeah. How how much does a general audience? I'd love to. I should have asked my wife what she thought of that and whether it made sense. Is it? Or is it just assumed to be tech suitably advanced that it's indistinguishable from magic and we don't care? I don't know. And I think um, the general audience would just get – it's not going to understand the concept of eye tracking as as a projection uh, mapping tool to, to offset the angle to keep it straight. Right. I don't think – you know what I mean? But I think that probably the guys who worked on the sequence were probably pretty excited to, to like – not have to hide some of the work and make it fun and a little obvious and and maybe even put in some jokes for visual effects people that may pick up on them. I don't know. I'm speculating, but well, when the uh, when the guards moved it um, towards the end, when they figured it out and they kind of pushed past it, 
the um the cloth sim that they had looked really nice as well just the way it kind of wobbled as they as they jammed it out of the way to run down the corridor that worked yeah. i noticed that it looked lovely i mean it is a it is a delightful scene in the crawling its way up i mean you know why couldn't you just shoot some poison dart that knocks the guy out kind of thing well <laughs> you know obviously you could but it, yeah it was kind of fun having them um crawl up the corridor with it it made for a good kind of comic device but i, I yeah point made so um this film has done hugely successfully well. In fact, it's the only film over the summer that is done really, really well. And people have put some of that down, just the fact it's a bit feel-goodish, like, you know, even Dragon Tattoo and other things which are cool and very, you know, Fincher-esque, marvellous, uh, just aren't kind of feel-good, happy kind of films. Um, and, you know, it's also obviously designed to appeal to a wide audience. Do we want to see an MI5? It's definitely set up for one, isn't it? <laughs> it feels like they're going to they're going to go for it. So if if there was one, I I would definitely be in line to see it. Yeah, if Brad Bird directed it, I did like the uh, I did like the the Ving Rhames thing at the end, talking about tech, because his technology in the first movie was horrendous. Like it was just like not real. Like the tech here is like a million years uh, uh, more sophisticated than like him on the train at the end of one and he literally is typing the words jam signal like you know what i mean like that is some hokey shit so for him to to like comment on that in the in this one i thought was really funny i've forgotten that what does he do in the in the first one no no but what, what is it that happens in the end of this one? I, I mean i remember the scene but i can't remember what he, they, what he says i forget what he says but he's saying something to simon Pegg about about like their tech uh, that they had or something. I, ca- I can't remember. I just remember like thinking that it was funny that they brought, not only did they bring him in, but that he talked about tech since his tech was so kind of lame in the first one. Well, we've been talking about getting the, the missile off the, the bottom of the ocean or something. Oh, we? right, right, right. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did have a bit of a like talk about that. There's after you've seen galaxy quest, I, I just can't get over the, you know, only stopping it with one second to go. Like in Galaxy Quest, they stop it with like, well, there's 10 seconds to go and it doesn't stop. And they're like, what? What? Stopped it. And he goes, but, but it's got still 10 seconds to run. And it, of course, it runs until it's got one second to stop and then it stops. Yeah. This did feel ridiculously um, contrived in that, you know, but, yes. I, you know, whatever. I'm sure if I was a 16-year-old kid, I'd be sky punching the, in the cinema and going, way to go, because um, it was fun. But anyway. Well, my thing is I, I, I have watched uh, – uh, there was a great documentary called the, the Atomic Bomb Movie all about with like re, uh, remastered footage of all the atomic bomb testing from the beginning to the end of all declassified footage and whatever. And you know, the explosion altitude of a nuclear weapon is well above where the, nuclear, where the missile even – was deactivated much less where it would have exploded. So yeah, I, I was think, thinking about that while I was watching it. Like they were already below the ceiling. But I think most audiences expect a, a, a missile to impact and explode. Right. But, but they also expect that you can really have holograms and that people would actually right. survive, you know, leaping across things the way they did uh, in this film. But I can, I, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah, I'm, it's an action movie. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I just think about those things. On my own, I mean, I assume they're not going to blow up San Francisco. It is nice, though, uh, when somebody does challenge you on one of those things, you know, like actually gives you a really, really accurate um, portrayal of something and it really gets you thinking. Uh, but it kind of resets the clock for what you can do after that. But, yeah, 
I'm sure you're right. I don't know much about nuclear detonation, but it sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things we haven't talked about, and we, we often do on this show, and there was a lot of it in this, um, was the, the old out-of-the-window shots. We had trains and cars in this. Did you, did you feel they worked okay? Well, I think we mentioned it when we were talking about the BMW that uh, was synthetically done from the green screen stage, and that yeah. I think it was great, and I didn't have problems. And I had problems on, was it Mission Impossible 1, where they went into the... Um, to the channel tunnel. Yeah, yeah. That really felt, yeah, ridiculous. Um, And much more ridiculous than anything in this film. Even the the, uh, stopping it one second to go. But yeah, I had no problem with those. They they passed the VFX show test of, but they would, wouldn't they? I mean, you'd expect ILM on a film like this to get that right. The only one that jumped out at me and I couldn't tell if it was, I didn't know that at the time um, that they had actually built an interior set of the, of the, initial go out the window hotel room um in vancouver that when when jane kicks the russian chick out the window yeah i did like that they didn't show her fall that was great we had already seen down the thing and to see someone fall is is ridiculous at this point but um and they can look pretty hokey those shots where people are falling away from you right exactly because you can't you can't really simulate that accurately uh so I mean, you can, but like, who knows that that's what it looks like. Uh, so when she kicks her out the window, the window's like blown out white um, because of the they they like actually went for the proper exposure. Yeah. Uh, for blasting desert sun out the window, and there was something about one of those cuts that I remember just looking for because they were in a window. But it was I, I don't I couldn't say what it was specifically, but I just remember looking for it and being like that was weird but i i mean again i'm looking for it uh because because i'm nitpicky about that stuff but it, it 99.9% of the shots were were you wouldn't know where they where they were and where they weren't yeah well i just want to do a bit of a plug um we are going to the tech oscars we're going to the SciTech awards and to the ves awards in uh, los angeles the beginning of february because we really want to give uh, credit where credit is due. And obviously, there's a lot of a focus, and we will do it as well, on who wins the best VFX award for the uh, Oscar at the main ceremony. But in fact, the SciTech Awards are incredibly important, as are the VES Awards. We just published today, which by the time you listen to this, we yesterday, um, the nominees for the VES Awards, which will be on the 7th. And we're going to be at the awards on the red carpet, uh, behind the scenes, interviewing and talking. And the films that are up for best visual effects include... Pretty much, I think we've covered all these films, Captain America, Harry Potter, Pirates, uh, Planet of the Apes, and Transformers. But what's nice about the VES Awards, and if you're listening to this show, you'll really appreciate it, is they do actually go into more subcategories. So it's possible to have uh, something recognized for, for example, an animated character in an animated film or an animated character in a, you know, not in a fully like in a live action kind of film or an environment for example created in a live action uh, film and these subcategories are really important for recognizing the work of the artists and if you look at that list it just shows you what a great year we've had um so that's on fx guide and then also as i said we're going to the SciTech awards and we'll be interviewing we're literally starting now we've posting the first of these uh as many interviews as we can with nearly all of the winners of the SciTech awards um, in the lead up to actually going to the uh, Oscars in um, in LA, so hopefully you'll be go- you guys will uh, tune into those over at FX Guide. The 
the ones to do with camera tech will be in the RC podcast and the ones to do with um, rendering and, and normal tech will be in the uh, FX podcast. And we'll keep you updated with that as it goes along. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to that. Should be a good month in the lead up to uh, to those awards. And I've got to say, even if you're cynical about awards, I don't think many people would dish or this the uh, SciTech Awards or the um, the VFX Oscars? Would you know us? Not agree. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can be pretty cynical about a bunch of stuff, but I think if you get recognised by the Academy, um, it's such a peer review kind of thing yeah. that. Uh, and and the great thing about that is the studios are really supportive with letting us talk to these people, and we're hooking up with both the Academy and the VS to um, to do that. So that's good, guys. Thanks so much for being on the show. It's been a good one. Um, can I get you guys to? Give us a quick rundown of where you're at. I mean, Jason already mentioned, Matt, that you're teaching over at FX PhD this term, which was uh, terrific. We're so glad to have you back. But where can people track you down? The best place is probably uh, straight on the Twitters, just under uh, Matt D. Leonard. So that's where I tend to hang out most of the time, or on the uh, FX PhD forums, of course. And uh, Mr. Diamond, sir? Uh, on the Twitters, also Jason Diamond, one word, and my uh, website for my uh, company with my brother, MBS Productions, like massively big Sultan. Make I'll make up a new one this week. <laughs> uh, I'm of course Mike Seymour, but the best place to find me is at fxguide.com or of course at fxphd.com. I just want to thank you guys again, uh, as I did at the outset of the show, for being so supportive for the show. Don't forget. Blue is glue and red is dead. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. See you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.